Welcome to the Waverton Why Invest podcast. It's me, Luke Hydesmith, one of the new hosts of the podcast, as we reboot the show going into 2024. Today, we are joined by Jonathan Maxwell, founder of Sustainable Development Capital, to discuss how energy efficiency can help us meet our net zero ambitions and what Jonathan and his firm are doing about it. We discussed Jonathan's recent book, The Edge, which is full of fascinating facts and figures, plus important helpful solutions to the energy dilemma. In order to whet the appetite, let me quote from the book. Energy efficiency is not only the largest, but also the cheapest source of greenhouse gas emission. It is a massive source of potential economic productivity and growth. If we are wasting two thirds of one of the largest and most valuable inputs into the global economy, no wonder global economic productivity has been languishing. I think you are going to love this episode, so let's just dive in. Jonathan, welcome. Maybe I could start off by just gaining a little insight into your background, your career to date, and the reason that you have written this book. Sure. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on and uh, for reading the book. (laughs) (laughs) So I've been running Sustainable Development Capital, or SDCL for short, for just over 16 years. We are an investment group, about $2.5 billion under management, focused, as you say, actually on the energy efficiency story or resource efficiency. Sustainable development, which is the first two words of our name for us, is synonymous with resource efficiency, and we'll kind of dig into that. But I created the firm 16 years ago because it was the place that I wanted to work. It was what I wanted to focus on. But I've been in the infrastructure sector since the mid-noughties. I was previously with HSBC Infrastructure, or what's now known as Infrared Capital. And back then, led the IPO of the first listed infrastructure investment company in 2006. I had done that off the back of what's now a 27-year career in financial services, spanning everything from public and private equity markets in the UK, Europe, United States, and other asset classes like infrastructure and real estate. Thank you. And I think one of the things that comes out in the book is your experience working in two of the arguably largest both asset managers in terms of HSBC, and then your work in China, which is obviously a huge economic force over the last 20 odd years. Perhaps you could talk about your experience of both those organizations and indeed the experience in China and how that relates to you wanting to start your own business and allow you to target specific areas perhaps that were unable to be reached by HSBC. Yeah. So I was very lucky in 2006 First of all, it was a great year in capital markets. Almost anything was possible that year. And I had the opportunity to go to China to work really for the first time for HSBC. And the objective was to create, which we did, a very large real estate investment fund. But what I discovered when I got there changed my whole worldview in a way that I didn't really expect. I'd been reading a lot about the environment, about economics, about how the environment bears down on economics. And indeed, 2006 was a pretty seminal year. In fact, Lord Stern, who provided the cover quote for my book, had published the Stern Review, which Mm -hmm. pointed out at that point in time that environmental degradation, climate change could actually seriously affect badly GDP or economic growth. And if we didn't do something about it, the intimation was it was going to cost us more in the long run than it would have cost us in the meantime to fix it. So it was a very interesting sort of backstory. Anyway, I went to China, started looking at opportunities to invest in real estate. And 
immediately found how the environment physically bears down on real estate and infrastructure real assets. So what was going on, you couldn't see down the street in Beijing, and that was because there was a pink hue in the atmosphere. Where was it coming from? I happened to be reading about it at the time. It was dust blowing in from the Mongolian desert because it cut down all the trees. You couldn't see down the street in Shanghai. It was white construction dust. There were amazing bits of work going on at the time in the government departments, like the State Environmental Protection Agency. And that was another game changer because in 2006, a uh, lady called Elizabeth Economy, an economist together with the State Environmental Protection Agency head, Pan Yui, published a report which said that China was losing double digits in terms of GDP from environmental degradation. So this wasn't a fuzzy, cuddly climate action activity thing. It was really blunt economics. You know, you factory closures because of sandstorms, crop failures because of acid rain, and so on. I added all of this up. It turned out to be about 12% of GDP, which is astonishing for a country that was growing at 8% at the time. So I went back to HSBC, said, hey, we're going to be successful, I think, in creating our business plan here, which is a real estate investment program. But there's a bigger story at work. What's happening is as the environment encroaches on the economy, very serious investment needs are going to have to go into energy and water and waste to actually make this work in terms of a sustainability program. And the last thing I'll say about that is China government came out with massive world-changing programs in 2006. The medium-term economic plan, which I wrote about in my book, which broadly defines the last 16 years mm -hmm. the Belt and Road Initiative. Also, up until recently, the most progressive energy efficiency or energy productivity policies in the world created in China in 2006, the 11th five-year plan. So it was kind of a huge seminal year for me coming back. I said to the bank, hey, let's set up a division of the bank just to do environmental infrastructure. And they said, Jonathan, it's a great idea, but we're not ready yet. We've just printed our millionth credit card in China. And I said, okay, I'll do it. So that's kind of how I created sustainable development capital. And um, it hasn't been the perfect straight line since I set up the business, mm -hmm. but I can tell you every morning I've got up and I've been very excited and passionate. Commercial sustainability is our priority. Well, we're going to get into that because one of my favorite quotes from the book, you know, if it's not commercial, it's not sustainable. Yeah. And I think, you know, we're right in the crosshairs of that in many parts of the renewable and infrastructure chain at the moment. But just to give the book a little bit more color, it's The Edge. That's the title. It's how competition for resources are pushing the world and its climate to the brink, and what can we do about it? That latter bit is vital, right? Yeah. There's a lot of doom-mongering out yes, there yes. about net zero, carbon, greenhouse gases, what it's going to mean for life on Earth. And I think this book does try and delve into that mm -hmm. and provide the backstory, but also really focus on what we can do about it, yes. both as individuals, but importantly, commercially. I think, interestingly, right at the beginning, you posed some fascinating questions that I think all of us have wondered or thought about over the last 12, 18 months. You know, why is there a cost of living crisis? Why is inflation so high? Why might there not be enough energy to go around? And my personal favorite, why can't renewables and vegetables <laughs> save the world? I mean, these are really important and indeed crux questions that we grapple with. But perhaps you could give, having delved into the background for SDCL, a little yeah. background into writing this book. What gave you the motivation and the inspiration to write what is a pretty thorough overview of the energy efficiency space and some of the solutions which we'll get onto. Yeah. If I start at the end, by 2022, February, with enormous support from institutional investors, including Waverton, 
we had built a pretty substantial investment program in energy efficiency. And we'd done that for a purpose. I start at the end. But it was an interesting time for me, sort of Q1 last year, because it was an opportunity to look back. I mean, I'd been running STCL for 15 years. We'd got to a pretty interesting place in terms of scale. And the basic thesis that I had been holding to for 15 years was Mm -hmm. pretty much what you've just described that I found in China. Big questions that came out, like, why are the Chinese doing this? Why are they focused on energy productivity? The rest of the world is focused on new shiny things like building wind farms and solar plants and nuclear power stations, if they ever did it, and various other factors. But why is the narrative different? Why is this about productivity and efficiency? Anyway, I came back the 15 years before, back to the UK, started looking around and said to myself, well, what they've identified is inefficiency in the way the energy system works. Do we have the same problems in Europe and North America? Mm-hmm. And I think this was the big eye-opener for me over 15 years. It was a little bit like that sort of red pill in the matrix and all of a sudden <laughs> yeah. everything looks different. And every time I looked at the energy system, I recognized these extraordinary inefficiencies. The first one that I started to recognize and do a lot of work around was how much energy is actually lost at the point of use. I'm going to steal the words from your mouth. I mean, this is the most staggering fact that we have discussed at length and is laid clear in the book. You know, two thirds of the energy that we produce is lost before it's consumed at the end. Even before it gets to the end user. And where I started 10, 15 years ago was looking at the end user side. And it's like, oh my God, all this energy is being used in lighting, heating, ventilation, air conditioning. And there were very quiet technology revolutions. This year, everybody's talking about AI. Three years ago, everybody been talking about Bitcoin. But the really quiet one was yeah. things like LED lights, which nobody was using 10, 15 years ago. You know, by the time we started investing in them in 2012, they were about 2% of the world's lighting sales. Now they're 60, 65% plus. So yeah. this is a huge global revolution in an application of a technology, which, by the way, can cut energy use by 90%. Yes. <laughs> you know, so it's like a massive... And totally stretch. unreported in the headlines. Yeah, I mean, uh, these uh, things are... Barely any interest. And that's the thing that you can see, you know, things mm. like heating and cooling. Cooling is the largest contributor, individual contributor to greenhouse gas emission growth. Going forward, there'll be more increase in cooling demand than the whole demand today for China and India put together over yep. the next decade or two. So they're just massive features on the consumption side on demand. And by the work that we did and the Chinese have been doing at the time, we were figuring that roughly a third of energy, this is a very round number, mm-hmm. but roughly a third of energy was being lost just because it had mechanical electrical infrastructure, in other words, things like heating and lighting yep. that just was out of date or that could be improved. So that was kind of the first stop. But then the real aha came because we started to look at the way that energy was supplied to buildings, infrastructure, and transport. Why does that matter? Because that's 70% of all the world's energy yeah. is in buildings, industry, and transport. I still wake up every day completely amazed about this and talk at conferences, I will again this afternoon, about it. But that is where, broadly, 70% of energy is lost even before it gets to the point of use. It's such a staggering fact. Frankly, it's one of the reasons to lay that argument out and to break it down and actually give the evidence based for it. It's not the kind of thing that you can do in a short podcast or even a conference or let alone an investor presentation, but it's one of the reasons a long-form format like this with a book is important. So where does it happen? You lose about 10% of energy just extracting and converting it into something useful. By the way, 80% of energy is oil, gas and coal. There are undoubted challenges out there, and I think these have clearly been brought to the fore courtesy of the Russia invasion of Ukraine and the the underinvestment, really, that we've seen in yeah. traditional energy over yeah. the last 10, 15 years yeah. and the resultant 
implications of that going forward. And as you say, irrespective of the huge investment we've seen into renewables over the last mm. 10 years, I think six trillion or so, yep. so far to date. And this is by all means encouraged mm -hmm. and one of the ways that we're going to reach net zero and try and reduce yep. carbon emissions. But the fact remains, as you say, 80% of primary energy production remains fossil fuel based. And arguably, the solution to try and hit the net zero yeah. is to make that traditional energy form more efficient and reduce carbon footprint, because it is unlikely to be going away anytime soon. And the energy transition is likely to A, take longer and be more costly than many people expect. It put it absolutely perfectly. I mean, I experimented with a new analogy mm -hmm. last week or a different one anyway, so I'll try it again. And one of the reasons I wrote the book, in a sense, it feels a bit like I'm talking about global policymakers, corporates, investors. The temptation almost is to try and put out the fire at the point of the smoke. What yes. I mean by that yeah, is I'm not yeah. even sure that the weight of capital on policy is being aimed even at the fire, let alone at the courts. And what I mean by that is exactly the reciprocal of what you just said. Here we are, we've got 80% oil, gas and coal today. It's mm -hmm. going down a little bit, but yep. only tiny, tiny marginally. As you say, 6 trillion in uh, clean energy, 3 mm -hmm. trillion on the grid over 20 years. Particulate emissions still keep going up, barely any displacement of fossil fuels. That's actually the problem, or at least it's a very, very large part of the problem. It's a deep problem and it's quite intractable because Coming back to my smoke analogy, one of the ways of dealing with the problem is to try and displace fossil fuels, right? But of mm. course, you can just try and displace them in two ways. I'll come on to reduce, but really, our whole thing for the last 20 years has been about adding. So we've been investing in renewable power, which we need, and need as much of it as quickly as possible, agreed. as low cost as possible. Totally agreed. But renewable power has limitations. Number one, power or other electricity is only 20% of the world's energy system today. So even if in a country like this or Ireland or the United States, we're at 30, 40% renewables penetration, first of all, you've got to get to 100%, which would take at least to the end of this decade, just in nameplate capacity in order to get your electricity system green. But that's before you actually displace the other 80% of the energy system, which is heating, transport fuels, industrial processes, etc., which is mostly a fossil fuel-based economy, let alone the entire global food system, which currently runs off fertilizers made from natural gas. I think it's just trying to paint a picture about the scale of what it is that we need to do. And if you then say, okay, now I get it. Now I understand what the problem is. The problem is we've got incredible amounts of embedded, enormously valuable, but a huge amount of embedded resource that we need to, to run the, the global economy today. Actually, the solution to that problem is to potentially, and this is if, mm -hmm. what if you could use less? What if you could do the same job or even more, but using less? If 82% of the world's energy system is old gas and coal, that is the largest source of greenhouse gas emissions yep. today. That is it. But what if we could dramatically reduce that? What if? And I wouldn't be sitting here today, wouldn't be writing the book, and frankly, I wouldn't be investing in this topic if everything was perfect. If our energy system was so efficient, Mm -hmm. But actually, it's so inefficient, it's so extraordinarily, amazingly inefficient, that there are abundant opportunities to try and address it. And just to go back to what I was saying before, just to explain very quickly, and because I think it's important to tell the story of the molecule just to get people's heads around this, but the largest source of electricity in Europe, North America, is, is actually from natural gas, solar and wind. Is three percent of energy, which became you know, rapidly, generation. rapidly clear uh, last yeah. year when natural gas supplies got curtailed pretty quickly. 
Exactly. And we'll come on to the geopolitics yep. of all of this. But you take a molecule out of the ground, you lose about 10% in the extraction and conversion process. It goes into a turbine. When a molecule of any description, actually, even if it's, uh, if it's gas, if it's coal, frankly, even if it's fuel like nuclear, only a certain amount of that translates into electricity. In gas, it's about 50%. It's a thermodynamic feature. The thermo side of that means that you're generating heat. Now, if you can't use the heat, you can't use it if these power plants are in the middle of nowhere and you've got energy consumption in town. So if you can't use the heat, it just gets dumped. That's why I call it waste. There's yeah. nothing to do with it. You can't transport it or you're not transporting it or you're not doing anything with it, which is broadly speaking what's happening. And half of that energy value and carbon goes straight up into the air. It doesn't disappear. It goes out into space eventually mm -hmm. through the atmosphere. Before the energy's got out of the, the electricity that is got out of the power plant, you've already lost 60% of the primary energy. You then lose another 5, 10% of it, mm. getting it to the point of use. And that's where you come to the number that you stated before, yes. 70%. On average in the UK, if you put all energy sources together, that the uh, Digest of UK Energy Statistics published in July every year, a very nice summer reading if you're a complete geek like me, shows that just about 60% in round numbers of all the energy in the system here is lost before it gets to the point of use. Mm. In the US, it's bigger, it's 70%. The reason it's slightly lower here is that we import energy, so it's, some of it is wasted before it gets here. Yeah. So it's extraordinary. So that's the big problem. Yes, we need to generate as much clean energy as we possibly can, as fast as we can, as cheaply as we can. But almost the bigger problem is that we're wasting all of this yes. energy Frankly, yeah. and you've talked about the geopolitics that we're fighting over. And historically has always been an area that one way or another countries have fought over and yeah. the resources by which, you know, spurs economic growth is a contentious topic. Well, I think the energy waste in the system is probably the energy system and the energy politicians' dirty secret. Maybe the illustration of that is that in 2014, when Russia annexed Crimea, there was a huge energy security crisis. Everybody forgot about it for seven or eight years until another one happened. But actually, the European Commission, the Energy Commissioner, came out in 2014 and said, look, for every unit of natural gas we don't use is 2.6 units we don't need to buy from Russia. Mm. Not one, but 2.6. Why? Because it's the point that I was just making. They know that most of this gas is wasted before it gets to the point of use or lost in the generation transmission distribution process. So the geopolitics says, look, efficiency is really important for energy security, let alone not wasting all this money on buying gas and emitting all the carbon. But actually, efficiency and decentralizing energy, bringing it closer to the point of use is a huge answer, not just to cost and carbon, but for security. Now, it was a convenient ability for Europe to lean on Russian gas up until February the 24th last year when Russia invaded Ukraine. They did that, as my book goes into describing, linked to, at the very least, the fact that Ukraine was the conduit for Russian gas into Europe mm -hmm. until they'd built a bypass around Ukraine so they didn't need to pay them rent or have it stolen or taxed. And then Germany and the US mothballed it on the 22nd of February last year. So on the 24th, Russia invades Ukraine, game's over for Europe's imports of gas from Russia. And the game has to change in terms of how Europe's energy security is planned. The first step was let's build offshore wind farms and double down on renewables. Which is certainly a subject of much debate in terms of cost and efficiency and currently. Time. And time. Yeah. So, and indeed resources to yeah. be able to build. Correct. One of my uh, favorite stats is the level of materials required 
So if you're starting from scratch to build a gas-fired power station yeah. versus if you're going to deliver the same yeah. amount of power for offshore winds, you're talking multiples of resources, be it iron or concrete, copper, and indeed space. It's no wonder we've gone offshore because certainly in the UK, we just have not got the space to mm. be able to deliver the kind of wind power that the government have targeted. Now, we're all agreed that we want to meet net zero through more renewable power, yeah. but just the practicalities, I think, are beginning to filter through and become a reality in an environment yeah. where energy costs have gone up, yeah. input of material costs have gone up, yeah. labor's gone up, and thus the contracted price of which many of these developers are willing to build at is mm. definitely under huge debate at the moment. And there is a big question mark about wind and what the effective cost of delivering that yeah. power is. And as you rightly point out, if we could be more efficient in our existing use of gas then that is a huge starting point. It would be remiss to not quote from Warren Buffett in a podcast where we're talking about investments and the commercial possibilities. And remembering a Buffett point, it is better to be approximately right than mm. precisely wrong. And I think this is really important because I think you mentioned it, you were talking about 50 billion metric tons of carbon emitted each year, mm. 40 of which is energy related, mm. 30 is in buildings, industry yeah. and transport, and at least 20 is wasted. So yes. as you point out in the book, the wasted energy is the largest and cheapest source of greenhouse gas emissions reductions, as well as productivity and energy security. And we can achieve it this decade. Yes. Well, we can. I think that time is a big feature. Please don't worry. I'm not saying that we shouldn't build renewable energy Correct. as hard and fast as we possibly yeah. can. The point is, I think we just need to be really honest. 2023 is a really important time for a very serious reality check and honesty about what's going on. It's going to take years, decades to build renewable power systems at scale. Yep. We need to do it as quickly as possible. And frankly, the longer we leave it, especially in an inflationary environment, the point you make, the more it's going to cost. So good to get on with that, right? But mm -hmm. it's also extremely important to recognize the time cost. You talk about the materials. Unfortunately, you need stuff, materials, whether it's fluids or solids, mm -hmm. to build anything, a gas-fired power station, nuclear plant, whatever it might be. Likewise, though, you need a lot of stuff to make renewables. The one thing I don't say in my book to be provocative, but I will hear is there is no such thing as zero carbon energy. Yes. One of the metrics that we like is energy return on energy invested. Yes. You know, how much energy make, yeah. is required to build offshore wind? You know, it's, yeah. it's a lot. Well, I really feel, feel like I'm hammering offshore wind here. You know, it's an important ingredient, but yeah. I think the reality is we need to be conscious of the fact that traditional energy is an important contributor to our energy mix. I think we need to be practical about yep, it. I yep. think I make points in the book about it. Please don't sacrifice the good on the altar of the perfect. Indeed. But I also think that there are some investment lessons that come here. Efficiency first. What are the costs of these technologies? How quickly can they be implemented? What are we trying to achieve if we're trying to solve for rapid decarbonization? low cost and reliability, then we need a technology suite that can deliver against that. And efficiency, even of conventional fuels, will play a role, at least for a period of time. That period of time, by the way, is pretty much, in the next seven years is the most important seven years mm. we have for this. It's time is of the essence. We're putting up more carbon each year into the atmosphere than the Earth can absorb. That, broadly speaking, defined as a carbon budget. The carbon budget runs out by 2030. So if we've got a 2050 net zero target or 27 net zero target, you've got to the party a bit late for yep. this. Yep. Depends what you're trying to solve for. You know, if you're trying to solve a one and a half, two degrees temperature, nah, difficult. 
if you're ready to tolerate a sort of relatively unknown period of time, you still got to deal with high energy costs and all the stuff I put out at the front of the book, actually, mm -hmm. in a high energy cost environment, cost of living goes through the roof. The cost of food, which is made from energy, goes through the roof. Yeah. Core inflation excludes energy and food as a metric. Mm -hmm. So what's happening at the same time is you're also going after materials to go and make the energy or yeah. and the energy transition. This is pushing up the cost of materials. This cost of labor is having to go up because of energy and food costs. So you've got a very substantial time cost of money feature going on here, which is why I think time is of the essence. And it's one of the reasons I wrote the book. It's not to be dramatic. It's not to be alarmist. It's to be Let's put it like this, an injection of reality and wake-up yep. call into the current discussion to say, yes, we must build as much renewable energy. Hydrogen might play a role here and there, especially in fertilizers. Batteries might play a role here and there. But let's get as much of the stuff done as with a filter of efficiency, cost, carbon, yep. and reliability at the forefront. But that's also in parallel mm -hmm. now, because this stuff can happen very quickly, put generation on site, reduce losses at the point of use, because that's the stuff we can get done in the meantime, in yes. the course of the next two, three, four, five years. And coming back to the reason I mentioned the investments that we have within our funds, this is what we've been doing for the last 10 to 15 years. And you asked me why I wrote the book. It was partly, actually, 15 years later, been going on about efficiency all this mm. time. Is this the right lever to pull? Are there other things going on in the world? Could we save the world through nuclear energy? No, not because it's going to take 15, 20 years to do but that. But part of the solution, likely. Correct. Yeah. So I, I say it's not all of this or all of that, it's all of it. Can yeah. we save the world through renewable power? Well, yes, but possibly not mm -hmm. immediately. It's going yes. to take a lot of time. Yep. Can we save the world through eating vegetables? Yes, and it's going to reduce the carbon footprint over time. But let's also be really realistic. If you look at how the world actually works, which is one of the reasons I've been writing and many other people have been writing about this topic, provocatively, you've just got to be real about it. All of the food on your plate comes from fossil fuels, yes. substantially. Yes, yes. I know you've got some great stats in there you about, know. you call it fossil food. What is required in terms of energy input to put yeah. vegetable, meat, etc. on one's plate? And maybe another thing I don't bring up as explicitly in the book, but just for fun. We said that 70% of energy is wasted in energy production. Primary energy is wasted to get to final demand, we should say. In food, it's worse. Yes. It's yes, worse. So the stats are staggering. A third of the food is wasted prior to reaching consumer. The actual food, let alone the energy into it, 40% of US food supply is wasted each year. That's £133 billion pounds mm. in terms of weight, or as you interestingly put, 10 million elephants. You know, this <laughs> food waste contributes 9% of global greenhouse gas emissions, a substantial amount. Yeah. Again, there are easy wins here that can be looked at yeah. and can really help us try and reduce. Yeah carbon emissions to get to net zero. I think to try and bring it into some of the solutions and maybe touch on some of the investments you've made, yeah. I think I'd like to try and bring the current narrative because one of the things I feel is that we've been through an environment of very, very low energy prices. And mm -hmm. so the efficiency of how we use it has not been as important. Yeah. You combine that with an era of ultra low interest rates, but the cost of money out there has been low. It's been easy to fund projects. Yeah. It's been easy to get capital. Again, it's not been an important criteria in terms of the cost of capital to fund projects, both of those have changed materially. Mm. Could you just bring us up to date with how that is impacting the discussions you're having? And secondly, introduce your listed investment mm. company and some of the underlying investments and how they're positioned to maybe yeah. benefit from 
some of those trends which maybe have changed materially from what we've been through. Well, going back to the history of our firm for 16 years, the scale of our investment program has more or less gone up 10x over the last five or six years. And so going back to some of the sort of longer term themes that you've been talking about there, the reasons why are fundamentally three key reasons, one of which is cost. Mm -hmm. So energy costs, although people complained about that they were high in the last decade, energy costs over the last three to five years have substantially increased. And the risk associated with those costs has substantially increased as well. So we saw huge spikes in 2022. But still, 2021, we'd already seen huge cost escalations post-COVID, supply constraints, which have been driving up energy costs. So high costs is a big issue. And there are some industries in particular which have been very susceptible to high costs. So manufacturing in Europe, which is now facing in certain pockets existential crises because it's just too expensive to make stuff with energy costs where they are in Europe. Data centers, which are measured in megawatts and not square feet, which have now got huge. You know, it started, yep. I was yep. three, five, ten megawatt data center energy. But now it's deals. the hyperscale. Now they're hyperscale 100 to 150 yep. megawatts. So energy cost matters a lot and mm-hmm. not much more than it did a few years ago. Second point is carbon. I'm being skeptical about carbon. I've been running a company called Sustainable Development Capital for a long time. Mm-hmm. But I think in corporate world, at least, carbon matters. And they're obviously very aggressive carbon targets, which have been set out by companies as well as regional and national government. And so carbon targets getting towards whatever it might be, net zero or decarbonization pathways is important more than it has been before. Of course, now tariffs or CBAM carbon order adjustment mechanisms, other factors, market incentives like the Inflation Reduction Act or the European Commission's activities in Europe. So carbon is the second other than cost. And then the third, and I think this is the breakthrough, very sad, but I think it's the breakthrough factor is energy security. Yep. If I look back, and maybe we'll come on to some of our investments, if I look back at sort of why we've invested 60% so far in America, uh, in the United States, that is, actually, it's an energy security issue, largely. Uh, it's the biggest of the three drivers. It's always either cost carbon or, or reliability, mm-hmm. so to speak, the trilemma. But their severe weather events have been devastating for local grids. New York, Superstorm Sandy knocked off the grid in 2012. We started to get going and investing soon after that. Louisiana, Texas, Florida, wherever it might be. And we saw this incredible storm in Acapulco, which was a terrible prelude of what might happen in the future in in North America. So the US market has rapidly decentralized its energy base. It has a massive grid. Everybody complains about transmission systems. But actually, industry has often created energy centers close to or at the point of use, driven, which is our whole thesis, Mm -hmm. energy is efficient and decentralized generation of energy. Yes, so I'm glad you explained the acronym. Is that (laughs) (laughs) self-coined? Yes. Yes, good. But the US has really done it less for cost and carbon historically, more for energy security and reliability. If the grid goes down, it doesn't matter because you can run your systems. Now, Europe, slightly facetious, didn't care about energy security until last February. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly the UK, where I've been hanging around the hoop my career, was never particularly concerned about energy security. Europe, not so much either. There was a huge reliance on imports of natural gas. That game was over in the summer of last year. And I think that's been a really a huge trigger for Europe to sit up and say, OK, what can we do? I referenced the idea of doubling down on renewables. But the answer is that's a great answer for the late 2030s or early 2040s. 
or even early 2030s, who knows, but it's not going to help tomorrow. It's not going to help in three to five years' time. So Europe stood up and said, energy efficiency first. That's the policy. Energy efficiency first. Not tomorrow, maybe next year when we get around to it. And they started to send mandated energy reduction requirements to all the European member states. Earlier this year, the British government set up something called the Energy Efficiency Task Force. The ambition was to reduce energy consumption by 15, 15.15% by 2030. The Europeans did it this time last year in a month. They just said to the European member states, you must cut your gas use by 15%. Was that followed through in yes. various countries? Almost immediately. Yeah. And cut your electricity yeah. use by 5%. Yeah. But yeah. why? Because it's what we started talking about. Because the inefficiency of the supply and the demand side in the energy system mm-hmm is so vast that this is the largest, fastest, cleanest, and cheapest source of greenhouse gas emissions, productivity, because it costs less, and energy security. Indeed. So I guess you know, it brings to sort of where to from here. It's a good opportunity now to briefly introduce SDCL, Energy Efficiency Income yeah. Trust, FTSE 250 listed yeah. investment company, ipo back in November 18. And yeah. Maybe if you could just very brief overview of what you're seeking to achieve, sure. some of the successes and, and some of the challenges, because there's yeah. undoubtedly market-wise some challenges out there yeah. from an yeah. investor's perspective. So let's touch on that. Yeah, so I'll start with the portfolio. Um, we've built a portfolio of about one and a half billion pounds worth mm-hmm. of project investments. Give you some examples. As I said, roughly 60% in the US. The backstory there is if you're a big steel mill in Indiana, and you're manufacturing hot raw coil and you're essential to the United States industrial complex, which is what our steel mill clients are, then they've got three major concerns today, cost, reliability, and environment, right? Mm-hmm. Because blast furnaces traditionally waste a lot of gas or remit a lot of gas from the blast furnaces and effectively also waste heat. So we have invested in solutions to that problem. And instead of the gases boiling the atmosphere, instead we're capturing them, recycling them, and using them for power and steam back for the steel mills. It's a huge win environmentally. So actually, pretty much they're an environmental license to operate. It's a huge win from a mm-hmm. cost perspective because the fuel we're using to make that power and steam is substantially free because yep. it's coming yep. off the back of these what would otherwise be waste. And it creates a better level of security and less reliance on the grid. So that's one of the investments that we have in the steel industry, what they call a hard-to-abate sector. But it's not as hard as everybody thinks if you can get these types of waste heat recovery, waste gas recovery solutions. Hugely and, and something like the steel manufacturer there in that example, outsourcing that to an expert mm. such as yourself, do they feel they don't have the requisite expertise internally? They've been focusing on manufacturing and producing the highest quality steel they can possibly produce. But at the same time, it's increasingly important for their either investors, but also their footprint to reduce carbon emissions. And that's gone up the scale in terms of importance from a management perspective. Yeah, so their business is that they make steel. Yeah. Our business is that we make energy. Oh, you coined a great phrase here, energy as a service. Yes. You know, that's basically the delivery you Correct. are providing to them. Correct. Yeah. And in this case, it's, it fundamentally operates as a partnership. Mm-hmm. We're inside the fence. We make the energy for the customer. In fact, our teams under our employment work together with their teams under their employment with the unions and collectively operate these systems. But they're making steel, we're making energy, we have our boundary of responsibility, they have theirs, and we are codependent. It's a very interesting system. District energy is another very interesting way of doing an energy solution. There's a huge range of district energy systems across the US, indeed in Northern Europe as well. But we're invested in one through see it in upstate New York, in Rochester. Kodak made it famous, actually, and Mr. Eastman, Kodak Business Park, 
It's a huge 10-kilometer facility. It's got 116 customers. And we operate the energy systems on which all of those 116 customers rely. Mm -hmm. Amazon Fulfillment Center at one end of the park, Kodak themselves at the other, and 114 other companies. On site, we give them the energy. We give them all of the other utility services. There are 16 utility services across the estate. So it's a local energy network. Red means Red Rochester. RE stands for recycled energy. And we're doing everything we can to make the local supply efficient. We bought it after it had gone through a coal-to-gas conversion. And this is the policy of SEER. We acquire these assets and we just seek to own them well and improve them and yes. expand the revenues, increase the margins, but decarbonize the platform. So that very much speaks to the efficiency element of the Correct. EDGE acronym. And I think the other really interesting investment that you have much more speaks to the decentralized yeah. aspect. This is, as we've discussed, trying to solve the production mm. of energy a little bit closer to yeah. the end use and yeah. reduce that wastage. So it's a sort of decentralized Correct. on-site solar developer and yeah. operator. Yeah, we've got a few examples. One of them is a big platform in the US mm -hmm. that we originally bought from Blackstone. It's a uh, solar and storage developer. So it's in almost all states in the US now. And it puts solar panels together with, where appropriate, storage assets on-site in schools, hospitals, commercial, industrial buildings across the United States. It's got a huge tailwind at the moment from the Inflation Reduction Act, but it was not why we invested. We invested because we're able to deliver on-site energy solutions through that platform that makes sense financially, improve reliability of supply, and provide the green outcome. I have to say there's very small number of circumstances we've used conventional fuels. Um, yes. But I, just to be slightly provocative, I'll touch on it. We own a big system between Jaén and Cordoba in southern Spain. So that's where one of the largest manufacturing bases for olive oil in the world and olives are. But they need heat to dry olives. And so there's a cogeneration system that we acquired and that we're improving that produces not just power, but also heat. So instead of a unit, a molecule of fuel being able to produce half a unit of electricity. Instead, we're producing extremely high electrical thermal efficiency solutions. We're using the power, but we're also using the heat. And I think that's a really critical component. Even if you're going to use conventional fuels, mm -hmm. then there is an opportunity to pretty much double the efficiency that is the combined electrical and thermal efficiency compared to the grid. And I think when you put the whole portfolio together, we're solving one problem, which is energy waste. Yes. But we're doing it using local resources to deliver the best outcome against three objectives, cost, carbon, and reliability. And all of which, as we've discussed, you know, have had somewhat of a step change in the last 12, 18 yeah. months, but have been important criteria yeah. previously. Yeah, it's increasingly uh, valuable yeah. as a portfolio of projects for end customers. As the integrity of the portfolio is very strong. We're using existing proven, commercially proven technologies, no science projects. You did touch on something else, though, which is, of course, the world around us, the macroeconomic conditions yes. around us have changed dramatically yep. over the course of the yep. last year, 18 months, with a huge increase in cost of money, so inflation, interest rates. In particular, obviously, the whole market for investment companies mm -hmm. and income in general has seen a massive re-rating. Of course, fixed income is a perfectly good proxy for what's been going on in the high yield or, or even the income markets. Indeed. And that has hit the valuations of companies, including companies like ourselves, who have had long-term infrastructure type returns with income. Yep. The feature that we're trying to help investors with is really sort of two things, one of which is to better understand our portfolio 
Yep. It's not all about wind or all about solar or all about PFIs. It's all about solving one problem, which we think is the biggest problem in the energy system and therefore the most valuable one to solve, which is mm-hmm. energy waste. Yes. We have a series of different solutions to solve the same problem, and that's the portfolio, but it's designed to be fairly consistent across the whole platform. We're investing in some great countries. But the other feature with our projects is that most of them have opportunities to expand revenues and margins. So we're not in on a fixed income, locked down, limited upside. Yeah, We've got yeah. real-life customers. We're not serving the grid as a primary business model. We're serving the end customer. And that means that there are almost always opportunities to expand capacity and revenues, streamline the operations, expand margins. And I think that gives us an opportunity for managed upside, as well yes. as having this benefit of long-term contracted income in our portfolio. So I think two things we really want to do more of over the next six to nine months is help our investors understand we're solving one problem with multiple solutions. Mm-hmm. The, the solutions have to be multiple because that's how you get to low cost, low carbon and reliability. But how the portfolio itself has the same philosophy across it. And then the second point is actually trying to point out where these opportunities for growth are. The opportunity for growth from where the shares are trading, which is like the rest of the investment trust industry, yes. is at a discount, I would argue. Substantial discount. I would yeah. argue in the yeah. case of see it even bigger discount, yes. which is an even bigger opportunity for it, people, I think. On that side, our job is to make sure that we put a clear pathway in front of investors in terms of the opportunity for NAV growth. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, at roughly a 10% yield, make sure that investors understand yes. the integrity of that income, the dividend cover that we have. I mean, that's one of the future. things that we've always pointed to in terms of, you know, the robustness of some of the underlying return profiles in infrastructure, energy efficiency, some parts of the renewable sector, certainly on the operating side is, yeah. look, we've seen a substantial share price derating, mm-hmm. but actually the income has been extremely robust, consistent, yeah. sustainable. And I think that speaks to the fact that you've got essential assets here. They are able to be cash flow generative. There's often upside linked to either inflation or contracted nature of the cash flows. And as you've pointed out, particularly in the energy efficiency space and some of the assets that you own, there's asset management potential within them. And the requirement for those assets for the underlying clients you serve have increased, really. It represents an attractive opportunity set. I think as we try and summarize what has been a fascinating conversation. I'm going to try and sort of put you on the spot a little bit in terms of what have you learned over the career and particularly in running your own business? What have been the greatest and most enjoyable aspects of it versus the biggest challenges? Okay, so the hardest related question anybody asks me is, are you more interested in being right or successful? And I think, <laughs> I, and I think as a business person, you have to ensure that you're getting the best performance for your investors. Mm-hmm. I think where we're able to kind of pull these things together is we have a worldview. We have a view on the energy system. We do think it's right. I think we have to be pragmatic. But I think conviction, putting real frameworks, doing the depth of analysis to really understand the marketplaces in which we're working, the macroeconomic environment, the integrity of the technologies. So I think what I've learned is ensure that your conviction is right is on is right but, but recognize obviously on occasions you know no, no one's that. going to get everything right Correct. be all ready the to time. adjust that recognize you're operating in a global economic environment to which you've got to be agile deeply research areas of these markets to understand where the value is think medium to long term not just short term in terms of long term value build the right team i'm incredibly grateful for the team that we've built at SDCL over the last 
five, 10 years in particular, and we've more than doubled in our footprint. We've got 350 people plus at portfolio company levels. Having an exceptional team is the number one feature, I think, to being able to manage a portfolio and grow it like this. And then I think stay very close and communicative with investors. We need to manage our portfolio in the best interest of investors. We need to take them into account and listen. And by the same token, we also, I think, have a great opportunity to deliver. I love the firm that I build. My fault, by the way, if I turn <laughs> up in the morning and, it, and I'm not enjoying my job, I've only got one person <laughs> to blame. And it can always get better. But I think the key ingredients is, and this is one of the reasons I wrote the book, you know, having a very clear perspective, knowing enough about the subject matter that we're working in to be able to make informed decisions and you know, having a great team around you that can help navigate it. Yeah. I know. I think that's extremely well put and a great summary. Uh, I think we'll just circle back on one of the really interesting quotes. You know, it's not commercial. It's not sustainable. It's not good enough to be just thinking thematically about a concept. It has to have a practical application and be commercial. I think that's right. Well, I hope it's right because I wrote it. But I think the other feature which I thought a lot about last year is sometimes there's a requirement for change. So what's the forcing function? for change. And we talked about cost and carbon and availability, reliability. These are the long-term trends, but what actually changes things? And what was interesting about 2022, which frames a lot of the book, was there were some big change factors, big forcing functions, like a, a massive one was Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And it made a step change. So that's one factor. What's going to force change and be clear as an investor, the timing associated with that. You don't want to be too early or too late. I think the other feature, which is very interesting for me, is just the overall picture we've been discussing about today. What actually makes sense? The danger is you rush off in a particular direction, chasing yes. a rabbit. You know, I'm going to go all in on X technology, all in on Y technology, mm. all in on this type of solution. One of the reasons it's called the edge is that there are limits. Yes. There are limits to the amount of time and resource we have. It costs money. We have to really understand those limits, calculate them properly. The third one, of course, does tie back to Russia, Ukraine. And uh, actually, the edge is the literal translation from Russian into English of Ukraine. It means on the edge. And I'm not trying to say this is an alarmist point. I'm just saying this is the forcing function. There are times like this when it gives us all the opportunity to reflect. It certainly did for me last year. And as an investor, I hope they're in a better position to understand how the world works and mm. what we should do about it. Yes, well... Jonathan, a fascinating overview of your business, the challenges we face, but also some of the opportunities. I think the business that you've built at STCL, the focus that you've shown has been market leading. Finally, from me, there are some fantastic quotes in this book. I would urge you to go out and get a copy. Anthropologist Margaret Mead once said, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has. I think that is really relevant as we often think, what can we do as individuals here? I think everybody can make a change, but it's focus groups such as SDCL really looking to deploy capital into areas that need it can make a change. And so I'd just like to say thank you very much for joining us today, Jonathan, and we wish you all the best for the remainder of this year. Thank you and so onwards. much, Luke. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Why Invest podcast with me, Luke Hyde-Smith, and our guest this week, Jonathan Maxwell. If you've enjoyed this episode, why not like us, subscribe and let your friends and colleagues know. The information provided does not constitute investment advice.
and it should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered as a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security.